You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 73. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com, which is a great website platform that helps you create beautifully designed websites, blogs, and commerce websites. If you would like to sign up and get 10% off in the process, go over to Squarespace.com lively and enter the word lively at checkout. At the end of this episode, I'll be speaking with Catherine of CatherineEliseStudio.com. She's a lively show listener who has a lot to share about how you can get the most out of your website. Now let's go on to today's show with Jonathan Fields. Jonathan Fields is the host and driver behind the Good Life Project, which is a global movement that inspires, educates, connects, and supports mission-driven individuals. You may know him from his YouTube channel where he interviews thought leaders and creatives about what it means to live a good life and now his more recent podcast under the same name. In this episode, we are going to discuss what inspired him to start the Good Life Project, how he makes choices so that he can be more present in the lives of his wife and daughter, the connection he's found between success and being comfortable with uncertainty, and we're going to talk about his counterintuitive three-basket theory, which has totally changed my whole approach to learning how to find the optimal balance between work and vitality and the connections in my life. This is something I've shared a few times here and there, and I'm so excited to now be speaking with the author of this idea. Let's go to the show. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for coming on the show. It's a huge honor to have you here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Let's talk about your background and how you got to where you are, because you have a fascinating hero's journey. Yeah, it kind of depends how far back you want me to go, but I'm not, I'm not going to go to when I was five. So let's um, take the grown-up years. I, I was a lemonade stand kid, always kind of into creativity and entrepreneurship and making stuff. And for some reason, when I graduated college, I ended up going to law school. I was very fortunate I did well in school and ended up practicing and uh, hit a point where I had basically not slept for about three weeks. I had an infection that ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in and sent me into emergency surgery. And it was kind of a wake-up call for me. And about three years ago, we started something called Good Life Project. And it was really to deepen my exploration of what it means to live a good life. What are the things, the pieces of the puzzle that go into it? And to travel the world and find the people who I believed embodied, not just talked about, not just wrote about, but actually embodied living well in the world. And to see if I could actually deconstruct what was going on. And that led to a web show and a podcast and a series of events and a whole bunch of growing fun stuff around that business as it really starts to grow and morph into all sorts of fun things. And that led me to you. <laughs> Your web videos were incredible. I say YouTube is like YouTube University, where you can have access to all mm-hmm. types of thought leaders and get mentorship from people that are dead or alive or within your reach or outside your reach. And the Good Life Project is incredible. I started binging on them, as I know a lot of your viewers and now listeners do as well. You do such an incredible job. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's kind of funny to me. I get emails on a fairly regular basis from people who said, hey, I just tripped over Good Life Project for some reason. I figured I'd watch a couple minutes or listen to a couple minutes of the podcast. And like, I just lost my entire weekend. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's something that I'm hearing a lot from the Lively Show listeners too. Yeah. So one of the things that you shared in your 
our 20-minute good life project with Christopher Carter as the host was you said something that really clicked with me, but I also had a follow-up. You said, I'm not here to do ordinary. And I love that. And you said that was in relation to your video quality and now your podcast. But I have a question for you. When you're not here to do ordinary, that's a great like marching order. (laughs) But how do you balance that with the idea of giving yourself grace when things don't go as expected? Or how do you live with the times where you can't do better than your best? Yeah. Number one, I don't always do it well. I would love to say that I did. I would love to say I have it all dialed in and I have it figured out and I exercise and I meditate and I'm a great dad and a great husband, but it's absolutely a dance. I do the best that I can in the moment that I can do it. I've built daily practices that I think make it a lot better. (laughs) can hear right now in the background, I'm in New York City. So there's a a siren yelling going by (laughs) in the street. You know, so every morning I wake up, I'm the first one up in my apartment and with my eyes half closed, I go and I sit and I meditate. So I have a a very devoted meditation mindfulness practice. There's a certain set of daily practices and rituals that help serve as really powerful resets for me and foundations to create a certain level of baseline equanimity as I move through my day and also to be able to see clearly enough to choose to allocate my energy to what truly matters at any given moment in time rather than what seems to be clamoring for my attention, which may not really matter all that much. And I think that's one of the big defining factors is that we've trained ourselves to be so distractible and technology is making it worse and worse and worse. And I'm not a Luddite, I love technology, but it's also rewiring our attention in a way that I'm not a huge fan of. So you have to kind of proactively build practices and strategies into your day to counter that, to just keep checking in and say, okay, what matters? I hold sacred the desire to be not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually present in the life of my daughter and my wife. So for me to do that, I have to make certain decisions, which may involve me saying no to business opportunities, leaving money on the table to travel. But, you know, as long as I hold those values sacred, that's what I need to do. And I'm okay with that because it's a deliberate choice that I make. You know, it means that maybe I don't watch TV and I don't. People are like, hey, did you catch that latest episode of this show? And I'm like, no, I've never heard of that show, actually. They're like, it's the biggest thing. Because I kind of know what matters to me. And I would rather be building something cool, being hyper creative, or be playing with my wife and daughter or, you know, like close friends during that hour or two than just kind of sitting and passively watching a show, even if it's a great show. When you find yourself not able to do ordinary or extraordinary, then what do you do to catch yourself and give yourself grace? Is there a thought you have? Or do you even struggle with perfectionism at all when it comes to, I'm not here to do ordinary? You know, I don't think I would call it perfectionism. For me, I don't want to do something unless I believe that I can do it at an exceptional level or unless I believe that there's the capacity. It may take years to be able to be really, really, really good at it. Part of that is because I want to make a big difference. And part of it is because I really just enjoy the process of growth and mastery on a personal level. You know, it's something that adds meaning to my life and and meaning is something we all need. But also I'm really forgiving with myself. Meditation is a really interesting example because people who are super adept at everything else in their lives, you know, like athletics, you're the best on the team. You're like, you go to work and automatically you're a rock star, you know, what people in the corporate world label high potential. But then you sit to meditate and frankly, you suck because everybody sucks when you start. That's just the way it is. But then you're like, but, but I'm a master of the universe and all these other things. And it didn't take me that long. I'm, I'm too smart not to be good at this meditation thing more quickly. It's like, okay, you know, having to wait, well, that's okay for other people. But you know, I'm better than that. And you're not. 
because the brain works in the way that it, that it needs to work and it takes time. So I think it's a really great training ground for you to let go. So I sit and you know I focus on my breath and I do my practice. But part of the practice and part of the reason I love mindfulness practice as a type of meditation is that it trains your attention, but it also trains you in the process of dropping, dropping storylines, dropping thoughts, dropping negativity. A thousand times during a sitting practice, things may come up. Part of your job is to just look at them and say, huh, thinking. And as you exhale, let it go. And not judge yourself for the fact that you were just distracted by it. And it's beautiful training for then moving that process out into life. So if I'm not really, really great as an artist, you know, or a maker right away, I'm like, okay, so I trust that if I put in the time, I will be. So I'm going to let it go for now. If thoughts pop into your head, like I suck, or this isn't good enough, or I'm not good enough, you're like, you know what, right now I'm not. I'm good enough for where I need to be today. I'm good enough for what's reasonable for the amount of time and love I put into it. And I'm going to keep growing. So one of my commandments of business is to be open to serendipity. So I think it's good to plan, but I think it's really good to just be open to the possibility that the thing you're trying to master or grow or build may not even be the thing that you're growing, mastering, or building couple of months or years down the road, because through doing that, you'll be exposed to different ideas or paths that end up taking you down a different path, which is exponentially cooler. Yes, I can totally relate to so many things that you just shared. And I'm also excited because something you've just touched on was fascinating, again, from hearing you speak about this. So you talk about our actions aligning with our essence. And that's part one of what we need to do. So we can go into that a little bit, but also you talked about the time it takes to do what your essence is at a level that provides a living for you. Do you wanna go into your theory on this? Yeah, so two different questions you asked, right? What do I mean when I say aligning your actions with your essence? You wake up in the morning, you have a certain amount of like units of effort in your day. And how you choose to invest yourself and your actions during the course of the day really determines the nature of your experience in the world and what you create. So you can invest that time reactively, which is what most people do. They open their eyes. The vast majority of people actually check their email before they get out of bed, which means that from the moment you open your eyes, before you set foot on the floor, the actions you're taking, which define your day, are reactive. You're reacting to other people's agendas, which they've planted in your inbox while you are sleeping. That's awful. So you go throughout the day and you are so crazy busy. And then you, you hit the end of the day and somebody's like, so what did you do today? And you're like, oh my God, I was so busy. And they're like, well, what'd you do? And you can't actually remember because nothing you did made a whole lot of difference to you. You just knew you were crazy busy because you were reacting the entire day to other people's agendas. It's a horrible, horrible way to live. And we choose it without choosing it. So what I mean by align your actions with your essence is basically really take some time to pause and get a really good beat on who you are, what you care about, what matters to you, what you want to create, who you want to be with, who you want to be around, and really understand the fiber of your being. And then from there, start to choose your actions so that they're in deep alignment, so that they allow that essence to become as fully expressed as humanly possible in the way you live your life. So that's what I mean when I say align your actions with your essence. And I think it's really at the heartbeat of a lot of the programming that we develop a good life project. It's sort of like one of the foundation beliefs just in the way that I look at the world. That said, let me share the human side. Does that mean that I always do that? No. 
I wish I'm human. I live in the city. I have crazy things that come up in my life. We all do. So I also, like we were just saying before, you need to forgive yourself sometimes too. And that gets to your second question, which is my ability to live in alignment with actions aligned with essence is a process too, to practice. I think life is a practice. It's not a journey. It's a practice. I think it's just really important to be working towards something, you know, to wake up and have a sense of purpose to what you're doing, but at the same time, also forgive your humanity along the way, or else you end up beating yourself up for not being as good as you need to be as fast as you expect to be. And that becomes paralytic and you just stop doing anything. Yeah. There's about 50% of the audience who is self-employed. What do you have to share for those who are on their journey there? Let go of your expectation of instant. I have never met an overnight success. In all the interviews you've done? In all the interviews. And I've interviewed, I mean, some of the most astonishing people in the world. You know, I've interviewed Brene Brown. I've interviewed the most iconic living designer in the world. He's 86 years old, Milton Glaser. He's, you may not know his name, but you know what he's created in the world. I've interviewed Sakyam Mipham Rinpoche, who's the global head of Shambhala Buddhism. These are incredible, incredible people that I've had just this blessed opportunity to sit down with. And there is nobody who just you know, took a moonshot and was successful. Even when you think you are, at some point pretty soon after you think you are, you wake up one day and you're like, oh my God, I know nothing. Like I, I thought I knew everything and I thought I had mastered this. And then you cross a threshold that puts you into a new place of knowing, which reveals how little you actually know and how far you are from actually that level that you seek to attain. There are two responses to that. Some people shut down, they get freaked out because they're like, oh, it's never going to happen. Some people are just like, how cool is it that I can spend my entire life pursuing this and I get to keep growing, I get to keep learning. There's never going to be a time where I peak. And that's amazing. And that's a really important reframe, I think, for a lot of people. Some people have that naturally, some people don't. And I actually don't know at all if I've answered the question you originally asked. (laughs) I like where we're at, though. So we'll just keep going from here. I can totally relate. I actually just worked with a client of mine recently, and she just said it was in regards to her life in her family and in her business. So she's looking at her parental relationship with her parents and then also in her career. And she's just like, I want to have it figured out. I want to know what my voice and identity is as a person and in the business. And I really stressed to her the importance of if she suddenly decided at one point that she did know that and she had it completely figured out, that at that point she would just stay stagnant the rest of her life. And that it's not really getting her to any future growth or levels that are beyond it because she would have had it all figured out. So it's kind of to the same point that you're sharing. And really what that is doing is inviting uncertainty into our lives. And quite literally, you've written the book on uncertainty. Would you mind sharing about the idea of uncertainty and how we can face it? Because when we're talking about the things we're speaking of, uncertainty is always part of it and our ego rails against it. Yeah, I did write a book, which is actually called Uncertainty, which was not the title that I sold originally, um, but that's a whole nother story. Here's the question I was really kind of trying to dig into. And when I write books, generally I write them because there's a big question in me. There's a burning question. I want to figure it out. So I convince a publisher to pay me to figure it out, which is a really cool way to actually do it. So when I was writing Uncertainty, I was looking at a lot of really high level creative professionals and entrepreneurs you know, the world's best writers, the most successful entrepreneurs. And I've come to know many of them and, you know, a number of them are friends of mine. And what I noticed was something kind of interesting, which is that some people seem to have this almost superhuman level or ability to wade into a seeming abyss of uncertainty. 
to constantly make decisions and take actions, knowing that they don't have anywhere near perfect information. They don't know if it's right. They don't know if it's wrong. They don't know how it's going to end, but they know they have to decide and they do it and they seem to be okay with it. And what's crystal clear is to create anything truly impactful and new, you need to be able to do that. And you need to be able to not only stay there for long windows of time, but keep revisiting that place. So I got really curious, why do so many people seem to be destroyed by being in that place while there seemed to be this really thin slice of high-level creators who seem to be able to live there with a fair amount of ease? So I start to really explore, like, what is the difference? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it trainable? And if it's trainable, how? That's a great question, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And again, this is largely because it came out of my own exploration because I've always built stuff since I was a kid and I've been an artist and an entrepreneur. But there's always been a fair amount of blood in the water along the way. And I suffered a lot. And I was kind of like really wondering, does it have to be? Am I just you know wired to create but not wired to handle the process? Or is there something that I can do to honor that Jones to create and actually be able to be in that space with far more ease. And in fact, there is, which is the good news. Some people just touch down on the planet, being able to handle it with a lot more ease. The truth is most people aren't. In fact, our brains for the most part are wired not to be able to handle that. And it sends us screaming from the need to make decisions and act in the face of uncertainty. The thing is most people, their response is they try and shut down the uncertainty. They try and create as much certainty as quickly as possible, which is the worst thing that you can do because the flip side of uncertainty is possibility. You cannot shut down the uncertainty without also shutting down the possibility. So when you run from uncertainty, you run from possibility, which means you run from the thing you most want to birth in the world. So the answer is not to run from that feeling that really makes you uncomfortable, it's to learn how to be with it. So I started to deconstruct a lot of the habits and the rituals and the things that all these world-class people were doing to figure out who was wired for it, who just developed a set of practices and ideas, and like, what were they? And I started to see patterns across New York Times bestselling writers, producers, entrepreneurs, painters. One of the big ones was some form of meditation, actually. And you, know, you saw this a lot more in what the world would label creative professionals or artists, because they tend to be more open to just practices like that. But increasingly in the business world, you're seeing this at the highest levels of business growth and entrepreneurship. There are a lot of people at C-suite levels and, and high-level entrepreneurs who are really doubling down on meditation practices. So that's one really huge thing. Then there are a list of a whole bunch of other either strategies or daily practices or rituals that people sometimes do without even realizing they're doing them. Like, I'll give you another example. A lot of super productive, super high-level artists are massively, massively ritualized. But here's the thing. They're actually not all that ritualized in the work. They ritualize everything outside of the work. So they ritualize their lives outside of the time that they're actually working because that creates a bit of psychic bandwidth to go to that place of uncertainty while they're doing the work, knowing that they can touch stone again when it comes to all the mundane daily things. So get even more precise. If you ask a well-known painter, hey, are you a creature of habit or do you ritualize? And very often they say, no way, I need my freedom, I can't be constrained. And then you'll ask them, so what'd you have for breakfast today? They'll be like, well, yeah, I had a sesame bagel with cream cheese and a coffee from this place with almond milk and extra hot. And then you're like, so what'd you have for breakfast yesterday? Well, I had a sesame bagel with cream cheese. And, and then what did you wear? Radio stations do you listen to while you work? And what's your favorite music? What do you play when you're doing this? And you start to find a really amazing level of ritualization 
in the lives outside of the work in many of the top creators and entrepreneurs in the world. So I started doing research into that to understand what was actually happening. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, but one of the interesting tidbits around that is that the more ritualized behavior becomes, it takes place in a different part of your brain and it moves from the part of your brain that actually requires a lot of energy to the more automatic part of your brain that requires far less energy which allows you more bandwidth to go into that place of uncertainty and to be able to survive there longer. It's kind of really fascinating the way that we're wired. I can relate a lot because I've been self-employed my whole career. So I've been dealing with the uncertainty since I graduated with $700 in my bank account and went out there and was kind of bitter the first few months. I didn't have a budget because I couldn't because I didn't know what I'd earn. So I didn't know how much I could spend for anything, let alone rent or food like my peers. So I too, falling in that category you're talking about, I'm incredibly boring. If my husband asked me where I want to go to eat, there's three places I want to go eat and I'm going to get the same thing at every single place. And I do think it's what you're saying. It helps save so much energy so that we can bring that creative decision making to our work. Another thing I've learned over the years from Albert Einstein actually said it so beautifully is that our master is our intuition and our mind is the servant, but our society has forgotten the master and now reveres the servant. Mm -hmm. So we're taught to rationalize things with our brain and make plans for things. And I found in my own career, and I think that what you're saying is so powerful, and I want to know if you do this too, over the years, instead of trying to figure out every last detail of what the future will look like, now I've made enough wrong turns and things that I thought would be good and I came from a good place with, but they weren't turning out like I wanted to. For example, the blog traffic had plateaued for several years and eventually I did workshops as well across the country, helping people with their businesses. Eventually I got wise enough to ask my intuition what I should do next. Instead of deciding what I'm gonna do next based on my values, which had been a good way of doing it for several years, to flip that and just ask a point blank question and let my intuition answer it. I heard something so far from what I was expecting to hear and where my mind was rationally at. And it's literally changed the whole course of my career ever since. Do you find that you're doing something along those lines as well, where you're just literally, instead of trying to decide and force your way somewhere, that you're just asking for the intuition to speak through you? Yeah, absolutely. I actually wrote an article, I think it was last year, the headline was intuition is data. We tend to look for data points to make decisions and we tend to look for hard data because it makes our rational brain feel better about allocating time, money, energy, resources, effort towards something. And we tend to at the same time discount soft data and intuition. I would bundle in that sort of like world of soft data which is kind of sad because intuition is extraordinary information. I mean, it's information that should go into the process, but because we fear being judged for making a decision then having somebody ask us, why'd you make it? And then saying, well, just intuition, a gut feeling. And then we fear being judged by people on the outside for having made any sort of meaningful decision based on something so soft, especially we fear doing that and then being wrong, having it fail. And then somebody is like, well, why'd you do it? And then we're like, well, I just had a gut feeling. They're like, oh, well, that's stupid. So we run from it. Yes. The biggest aha moment I had from listening to your Good Life Project is about the three buckets. Can you tell us what they are and how you're flipping what we assume we need to do on its head? Yeah. You know, again, my mind works a little bit like a pattern recognition engine. So the more information I have, the more I get to travel around and sit down with amazing people, I start to connect the dots. 
and create frameworks and ideas. That's just, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how do I consolidate what I'm learning into value for other people. So over the course of the last few years, this sort of a model of what I call the three buckets started to drop around the question of how do you live a good life? And there are three major buckets in my mind. And it's still an evolutionary process for me. But right now, those are what I call contribution, connection, and vitality. You can probably take a pretty good guess at what each one is about. One is about how you contribute to the world. Some people equate that to work. It is not necessarily work. The other is about connection, which is really about how you connect with yourself, with others. It breaks down on a couple different levels. And then vitality. How are you taking care of yourself, your mindset, your physical body? And the idea is really that to really live your best life, you've got to be constantly filling all three buckets because the most full bucket will always be limited by the height of the least full bucket. So counterintuitively, if you're really struggling on the contribution side, you're trying to figure out your job, the way you're earning your living, it's just not working for you. And you're working harder and harder and harder. And you're working smarter and smarter and smarter because people tell you work smarter and not harder. And it's still like the, the needle's just not moving that side of your life. So people are like, let me work harder at this or even smarter at this or learn productivity systems. And counterintuitively, very often the solution is actually to pull back and to look at the other two buckets, and I can almost guarantee one or both have like run completely dry and they're rusting on the bottom. And if you actually pull back on your work and you start to really double down on self-care, or if you pull back and you start to double down on nature or on your relationship with a partner who you've abandoned, whatever it may be, and you forget about work, all of a sudden that other bucket will start to fill itself. And then almost magically, the contribution bucket becomes unlocked. And you see a way back in, you see a way to make it go higher and higher and higher. So the counterintuitive part is that very often the way to make the most progress in one particular part of your life is to back away from it and see which other wells have run dry and start filling those. Have you used this in your own life? And is there any example of when you faced this and what you did specifically? I use it every day and I faced it in the last couple of weeks. I was telling you just before we started recording, three weeks ago, I flew to San Francisco to record some stuff for some people and to speak. And on the plane out there, both ears filled with fluid and became incredibly painful. And I had severing to almost complete hearing loss in one ear and partial hearing loss in the other. And I was really struggling out there. And the doctors told me, you know, you either hang out here for anywhere from a week to a couple of months because you can't fly or you take a train home or drive. So I ended up on a 96-hour train from San Francisco back to New York, and I got home, and I was miserable. It was kind of funny because people were like, oh, how romantic is that? You're a writer. You're going to get amazing writing and amazing stories on the train ride across country. Meanwhile, I'm feeling awful. <laughs> so I'm just like, this is the worst thing that I can imagine right now. So I, I do have some stories, but you know, the experience was not a great one. And I got home, and I just looked at my wife. I'm like, you know what? Last year was a year that I pushed really hard and I, I made a deliberate decision to do that because we were doing amazing things and really building the company and the impact that we were having. And I was willing to do that last year. I made a conscious choice. But this year, in getting really early signals that this year is starting to set up the same way. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to let my vitality bucket dip low. This has got to be a year where that bucket is absolutely maxed out. So I've actually already canceled a number of keynotes. That would have required more travel and more strain on my body, more strain on my health. That leaves, you know, it means walking away from a lot of money. But right now, you know, my vitality bucket, I could just feel was getting too low. And I knew that that was going to take a big hit on the rest of my life. And I wasn't willing to go there. 
So I kind of reallocated and we had already mapped out the entire year of projects. And speaking is, you know, like a solid chunk of how I earn my living, but it's getting put on hold right now because I need to fill the other bucket. Have you had a time where you were trying and trying to keep filling that bucket and then you stepped away from it and the bucket filled itself? What you're saying is that you're doing that right now, but I'm curious in the past, have you ever seen that happen? Because it just seems almost counterintuitive. Like you said, we're taught to work harder and smarter not to pull away. Yeah, I have done it. Typical guy, so I tend to have to get beat over the head for a while before I actually wake up. I'm getting a lot better at it with my daily rituals and meditation, but I almost wonder if part of this is, I trained as a gymnast for the first half of my life, which meant I learned how to endure very high levels of pain for a long time. And I almost wonder if that wired me to transfer that into the way that I invest my efforts in building a career or living or like pursuing mastery, pursuing really being good at stuff. And it trained me to not listen to the signals that say that you need to actually pull away. The 10 years, I've really been trying to reverse that in myself and just teach myself to listen a lot more, but also to understand just what matters. I think the thing that we haven't really gone into is that we tend to be fiercely ignorant of who we are and what matters to us. So part of what I've tried to do also is to spend a lot more time just developing processes of self-inquiry, self-investigation, self-discovery so that I can really get a much better beat on how to invest myself. Is there anything besides meditation that the listeners and I can use to get to know ourselves better? There's a lot of questions. <laughs> we actually have a whole, like a ton of processes that we've developed just in a lot of the work that we do with people because that's the first thing that we move people through. But I know you do work with values and I think you have a different word for it. Uppercase V values. And values-based intentions. Yeah, and values-based intentions. So I think that's one of the starting points for a lot of people that they never really explore. And my feeling is actually that a lot of values-based exercises that are offered sort of like, you know, in the general public don't actually tell us a whole lot about ourselves. No, it's just a list of stuff that people put on their mission statements. <laughs> right. And it's entirely unactionable. Yes. You know, so it's like, I'll give an example. So let's say they're like, oh, Jonathan, what, like, what are your values? I'm like, oh, family. Okay, how am I going to act on that value? Like, what does that actually mean to me? It's not actionable. And so a lot of what I'm about, a lot of everything that we do in the program that we develop is all about making things actionable. I'll try and keep drilling deeper and deeper and deeper into that until we can attach verbs and get really highly specific. And then we have something that you can actually work with. Absolutely. I do similar work as well. Let's talk about your doubts and resistance and how you face them in your personal life. You know, I may be a little bit of a freak with this. I don't have a lot of doubts and resistance. To me, I kind of look at the world as anything is possible. And if anything, maybe the thing that I would struggle with is that I see possibility. A lot of people look around and they see walls and I look around and I see possibility. Probably one of the things that I wouldn't say I struggle with, I would just say it's an interesting exploration for me is that I see so much possibility in so many different places that choosing is a thing where it takes a little bit more effort to really focus my energy and keep it sustained for a long time. So again, it goes back to having a set of metrics that allow me to choose, really knowing myself what matters to me so that I understand better what to say yes and no to. No one's addressed it that way before. That's really beautiful. So last but not least, what would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? Be gentle with yourself. When you're starting anything, you work on a set of assumptions. Some of that comes from data, from what you've actually learned and tested in the world. 
the vast majority of it just comes from guesses. They're leaps of faith. They're what you think is going to work, what you think is right, what's right for you, what's right for the world. So approach the early days of anything, not with the desire to succeed in terms of making money, having a venture that the world perceives as successful, but change your primary metric to learning. So your job is to actually learn, is to basically say, how can I most quickly test the assumptions that I have, validate or invalidate them, and then adapt where I'm going and what I'm doing based on what I now know is true versus what I previously assumed was true. I love that. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the show. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for coming on the show. And thank you, as always, so much for listening. If you'd like to go over to Twitter and send Jonathan a message, you can do so at Jonathan Fields. And if you're looking for me on Instagram or Twitter, you will find me at Jess, C as in cat, lively. The show notes for this episode are at JessLively.com slash Jonathan Fields. Now let's talk with Katherine Snelden of KatherineEliseStudio.com about her experience creating a beautiful website with Squarespace and her advice if you're looking to do the same. And at the end of the interview, I will be sharing who's coming up next week on The Lively Show. Catherine, thank you for coming on the show and talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am the owner of Catherine Elise Studio, which is a boutique studio that offers public relations, events, and social media services for lifestyle brands. I'm a creative consultant, and I have been doing this for about two and a half years, but just went full-time with my business in January of 2015. Congratulations. How's it going? Thanks. It's going so well. That's awesome. Okay, so tell us about your site, Catherine Elise Studio. What's it specifically about, and how did you get started with the site? I'm really passionate about helping brands find creative perspective, and I've always loved working in the public relations field and have previously been in an agency setting, but I had this burning desire to really share my experiences with other smaller brands and entrepreneurs like myself. And so that's what really drove me to launch my business. When I was wanting to launch this company, I was really debating back and forth because I wanted to also share information with a blog, but also have a very professional website. So I was like, how do I pair both of these together? And that's really where I came to when I found Squarespace because I was so excited that it was a blog platform, but at the same time had a very professional and modern feel. How did you get your site to look so amazing and how can others make their sites look just as amazing? I actually use Squarespace trial period, which is two weeks, which is really incredible. I don't know of any other companies that are doing that. So I could really log in and get a feel for the functionality of Squarespace, test out the different templates before I went and made that investment, which was huge for me. Being a small business owner, I didn't have a lot of capital to invest in something like a website or a graphic designer off the bat. So I played around with a lot of the different templates that they offered, and I actually found one that was designed for a restaurant, but I really liked the look and feel of it and how it had so many different cool options, a lot of spaces for images. I probably designed my website over the course of five or six days because I was so excited about it and how easy it was to use. As far as the look and feel, branding is one of the services I offer, so I have a pretty good 
background and what a brand should look like when they're developing their website. But I don't have the design skills that a graphic designer would have. I mean, very, very basic high level knowledge. And so I use stock photography from a local business owner that I'm friends with. And I also did a branding photo shoot. And that was the bulk of what made my website me was making sure the colors were all cohesive. And then I had great photos and then the content and the messages to back it up. That's a really great insight for anyone that's really starting a site. I can't believe you got to get your site up in five or six days through Squarespace. Yeah, I I was just really eager. I didn't realize I was going to enjoy the process as much as I did. But it's so easy to move things around. And I was just really excited about it and wanted to get it up. What do you love about Squarespace the most? What I love the most about it is that the templates are very beautiful. They're very modern. They have so many options, but at the same time, you can customize them so easily that it doesn't feel like you have the same website as every other person out there, especially within my industry. There are so many different public relations firms and creative consultants that potential clients could choose from. And I wanted my website to really stand out. Having flexibility, especially as my business grows and the different services I offer change, being able to go in and make those tweaks whenever I wanted was so exciting to me. Where can people find you? You can find me at www.katherineleastudio.com. I'm also on Instagram at Studio. Thank you. And for everyone listening, as she mentioned, there is a 14-day trial period that is totally free. So if you also want to try that and get 10% off when you decide, if you decide to sign on with Squarespace going forward, you can get 10% off by going to squarespace.com lively and entering the code lively at checkout to get that 10% off. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us. Your site is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And now for a sneak peek, next week's episode is going to be with Jessica Turner of The Mom Creative and author of The Fringe Hours. We'll be talking about how to get the most out of your day so that you can have time for your passions and not just the things you have to do. This is a great episode for so many people who are looking to dive into things that really matter to them, even when they feel like they don't have time. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today.